This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, we are going to Nashville, and we're going to go early um, because a lot of you all listening out there are also going to Nashville. We thought for this episode we would uh, give you a little bit of preview, talk to one of our uh, a brewery that we are really excited about, really hot on in Nashville, Southern Grist. Joining me is Jared Welch from Southern Grist. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to do a little bit of a little bit of preview. We're going to talk to you about uh, the progressive styles that you brew. Um, everything from insert juicy pun, a hazy IPA that just scored a ninety-three with our blind judges in the new IPA issue of Craft Beer and Brewing. Congratulations on that! Thank you. We're going to talk about uh, brewing hazy IPA. We're going to talk about brewing fruited sours, um, and I guess you guys are big on coconut too. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about can't, coconut. Can't get enough. Yeah, why not? You know, this is a little bit of break from our Czech episodes. We figured with CBC coming up, we wanted to give folks uh, a little bit of preview of uh, what Nashville had in store. Thought we'd have this conversation. Before we do that for years, G&D Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built, offering 24-7 service and support. G&D builds with non-proprietary parts, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. G&D's in-house engineering crew have been piping breweries, wineries, and distilleries for over over 30 years. They offer free piping design and consultation with the sale of every chiller they build. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG Distributors of Gambrinus Malting. Canada's original small batch artisanal malt house. If you've been searching for the perfect malt that's not quite pale and not Munich, you're in luck. Gambrinus Vienna is the malt you've been looking for. This mellow kilned malt has a balanced, bready character with notes of honey, toffee, and caramel baked in. With a gorgeous golden color, it's ideal for adding depth without too much sweetness. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And scheduling freight carriers should be the last thing on a brewer's mind, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your flavored craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes to get started. Head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. And of course, if you're heading to CBC in Nashville, join us and our friends at Country Malt Group for the one-stop party at Yeehaw Brewing on Tuesday, May 9th from 7 to 10 p.m. It'll be a night of great music, great collaboration beers, great people, just steps from the convention center. So come on out and say, hey, we'd love to see you there. And I'm sure Southern Grist, you and Jared have some uh, some events, and we can talk about that later on uh, as we wrap things up here because we'd love to uh, to come check out all that Southern Grist has to offer. But uh, as we get started here, why don't you give me a little background on the brewery? Um, you know, what led you guys to start the brewery? And uh, talk to me a little bit about your own personal history uh, through craft beer and then uh, into the world of brewing. Yeah, so Southern Grist, we just <clears throat> celebrated our seventh anniversary. Um, so we've officially been open to the public. For seven years prior to that, myself and my two co-founders, uh, Kevin and Jamie, we all met at a corporate job that we all had here in Nashville. They were from uh, San Francisco, out in California, transplanted here to Nashville to kind of open up an office that was a, a extension of what that, that corporate uh, business was doing at the time. I came down here from uh, Ohio, pretty much straight out of college, just to build my sales resume and kind of further my career. and. We were all 
living that corporate life, doing that grind day in and day out. And I was just a huge crap beard nerd. I mean, I was, you know, doing all the beer trading and everything like that and got into home brewing kind of in college and right out of college. And Kevin and Jamie were into craft beer as well. And they kind of wanted to open a brewery themselves. I wanted to open a brewery. They have great business minds, but they know they needed somebody who could kind of make good beer. And I, you know, it's definitely a little bit more experienced on the homebrewing side than, than they were. And uh, being at the corporate job we were, it was a pretty young corporate company. On Fridays, people would kind of kick off a couple hours early and hang out, have beers, just kind of socialize. I'd bring my homebrew in periodically and, and hang out. And Kevin and Jamie tried it. And one thing kind of led to another, a couple conversations uh, that just kind of organically happened. And the three of us decided it was, it was time to go ahead and get out of that corporate world and start our own brewery. So once we made that decision, I, oh man, I wish I remembered exactly how long, I think it was only like 16 months from the time we had that first conversation until we were serving our first beers, which is relatively short. I mean, to be planning for less than a year and a half, uh, that was, that was pretty cool, but that's kind of what, what led us to open and it's it's been awesome since i mean we started super super small right. um you know we started on a really tiny brew system i i had a, a psycho brew brew stand it was basically two two barrel brew systems side by side and then i would kind of like stagger my brew day with two mash tons and two <laughs> two brew kettles and then just knock out into one fermenter and then by the time i'm kegging it, i did all that work for like six kegs of beer uh, yeah it was lovely Brutal, brutal. Yeah. But you guys have grown since then, and you now have, uh, you know, uh, additional location, yeah. right? And uh, at, yep. uh, it's gotten bigger and bigger. Yeah, it's been great. Um, you know, on our second anniversary, we opened up our production facility. So we have a 15-barrel brew house. It's really oversized 15-barrel brew house. And we have two tap rooms kind of bookending each side of the city. Um, yeah, we can maybe talk about that a little bit later when we talk about CBC and such. But, yeah, we brew out of one location that is on the west side of town and uh it's quite the jump up from where where we started that's for sure the original spot was it a, like a garage at one point or something i mean it, uh, it seemed like know, a little uh, I had, yeah it, it looked like that i had heard 18 different stories of yeah. what it once was uh, i think right before we took it over it was like a little corner store bodega yeah. like neighborhood bodega type thing for that maybe it was a gas station at some point I could have um, seen that. Yeah, it was. I did in, pop over there yeah. last uh, last CBC just at the end of my my trip before uh, before I flew out. So I I got a little bit of little little lunch, a little bit of beer while I was over there, and uh, got uh, more familiar with what yeah. you all are doing. And and we're we're not even in that location anymore. That location, oh, no. yeah, we're no longer associated. We moved about a mile down the road, bought okay. a building, put in a full restaurant, still in the same like part of town. But sure. um, yeah, our we're, we're have severed ties with our original location which you know bittersweet so well you know that's the it's the downside of getting so popular that you can't fit into the little places <laughs> sure. anymore i guess sure. Uh, sure, sure. You know, what a terrible thing so to talk to me about how you designed a beer program for this uh, obviously you came out of a beer trading world yeah um you know you were passionate about this stuff and uh you know obviously you guys decided to focus in specific areas and build a a name and reputation around, uh, you know, progressive styles of beer. Talk to me about, uh, you know, how you uh, decided on, um, you know, how to approach that and then how you went sure. about building a beer program. Yeah. So it's from day one of Kevin, Jamie and I sitting down and planning. It's, it's in our business plan that when I was talking about how I want to brew beer, you know, just being the, the 
consumer side uh, person that I was with my background in craft beer, I knew that when I was always looking to buy new beer, I always wanted to try something new, right? That was just the type of consumer I was. And I wanted to provide that for our consumers in Nashville because I don't think at the time there were really any craft breweries that necessarily were doing that. It was a lot of year rounds and seasonals, which is great. But I saw kind of an area where uh, we if we could just constantly be evolving our tap menu, I think we could get a lot of repeat business that comes to our tap room, sits at our bar, or sliding in that beer, right? That's where the margin is. That's as a small craft brewery, when you're not scaling our production level, you want to sell every single drop of liquid you possibly can over your own bar. Um, so in our business plan, I think my goal was to essentially, it was uh, to have a brand new tap list every two weeks, I believe is what the initial plan was. And when we came out of the gates, I mean, we were pretty close to that. Again, we're on a pretty on, small on system. Two two barrel systems, you know, yeah, two exactly. two barrel kettles, so, right? Not yep, much yep. choice. So exactly. So every time I was brewing, you know, I was tweaking things. Um, but we were coming out with new brands, right? And it was it was a lot of fun, but it was kind of hard to keep up with. <laughs> um but we haven't really strayed too far away from that as as we've grown. We're making beer on a much bigger scale now. Uh we lean very heavily into what I call our like series, where you know, we have our Hill series, which is kind of our, our fruited sour series, uh, kettle sour. And that's our way of bringing new brands every time through different adjuncts, fruits, things like that. But the base recipe itself is pretty much the same every time. I'm just changing things up with the ancillary ingredients I'm adding that kind of give the consumer a new brand. So we're still evolving how many beers we're, we're brewing every single day. Um, the tap list is not turning over every two weeks anymore, you know, and I have 60 barrel tanks out there. We're not going through those in two weeks, but, uh, but it's, it's still a lot of fun. It's, it's really cool. At least you don't have to triple batch, uh, you know, to just keep things, uh, keep yeah. the tap lines full on those, on that tiny little system. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, when you, where'd you go for, uh, you know, for that an inspiration on how to brew some of these beers? Because, you know, as you got started, uh, especially trying to build the idea of cool. And I mean, I think, you know, that there is that space for something that felt cool in, mm -hmm. you know, in that market, hazy IPA, fruited sour, definitely, you know, in that kind of time frame, you know, felt different, different and cool, like beer that were hard, beers that sure. were harder to get made well, um, but also figuring out how to make them well. You know, you have the benefit now of brewing on a tiny, tiny little system where you're sure. You can make mistakes and you can fix them really quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that is a, one of those weird benefits that came from that highly inefficient uh, process. And I hear that over and over again. Um, you know, but how, do, you know, how did you go through that kind of early learning process and, uh, where'd you start and where'd you end up, uh, after the first couple of years of doing it that way? Yeah. I mean, just, you know, having my finger on the pulse from a craft beer nerd dumb side. Um, if I heard about something new, right. The first time I heard about a milkshake IPA hadn't. I think maybe I had one example of it until I decided to brew it for the first time because it was just, I, I do think I was really good at learning about something and very early and just jumping in. I've always been a jump in head first type person. People always ask me, oh, you do all these crazy beers. How big is your pilot system? I We don't have a pilot system. We've never had a pilot system. Um, so I definitely like to do research. I'm a, a big kind of self learner type of person where I will do as much learning as I can by what resources are available to me, whether that's just the internet sometimes, um, especially when you're on the kind of the forefront of trying a new style. 
that that's what it is. But I will do as much research as I can, and then I will jump in head first and uh, you know hope it hope it pans out well. The the other great thing about starting so small is not only if starting on a small small system, not only can you make adjustments really quick and kind of fix things without it being a big batch, but it hurts a little bit less too if you do make a mistake and you have to dump it. Um, that's that's another big benefit of being small. And obviously, I never want to dump beer, but I also never want to serve a consumer uh, a product that's objectively flawed. And so there, there were definitely some of those moments in, in the past where uh, the beer had to meet the drain, but it is what it is. So. Sure, but you can hear about an idea. You can kind of use that brewing knowledge that you have to think yeah. about what might make something like that work and uh, you know how to build your own idea around it. Um, you, know, you have some, uh, some North Stars to kind of uh, you know, triangulate off of and figure out where you're going to go on that. Um, you know, but then you can try and then you can tweak and uh, iterate from there and, and then you get there. Well, I want to uh, talk about what that looks like now with a lot of these beer styles. But before we do that, take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system, now predicting specific gravity. With predicted SG of precise control over the fermentation process to ensure consistent, high quality results, AccuBrew's mobile app and stainless steel sensor work together to send you live data from inside your tanks, including predicted. SG, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. Join the AccuBrew community and experience 24-7 peace of mind with their set it and forget it solution. Come see them at CBC Brew Expo in Nashville to meet the engineers at booth 2935. Also, ProBrew has always been a dedicated and trusted partner to breweries, especially when they make the leap to canning their product. That's why they only sell rotary can fillers, which significantly reduce product waste and produce higher quality product than an inline can filler. Need proof? Visit ProBrew at booth 433, as well as at their party at Yazoo Brewing at this year's CBC in Nashville to RSVP to the event or schedule time with them at the show. Visit them at probrew.com slash CBC or email contact us at probrew.com. ProBrew, brew your beer. And Indie Hops breeds new hop varieties to help brewers captivate beer lovers. Indie's unique varieties, Strata, Lorian, Luminosa, and Meridian, are trusted by brewers worldwide to modernize, brighten, and diversify their beer lineup. Indy also offers classics that thrive in Oregon terroirs such as Chinook, Crystal, and Sterling. Thoughtfully crafted and selected hops to meet your brewing needs. Visit IndieHops.com slash podcast and stop by their booth 2131 at CBC to discover what's new in hop flavors. Indie Hops, life is short. Let's make it flavorful. So let's fast forward to today, Jared. Um, you know, obviously, uh, hazy IPA and hazy, uh, double IPA and, uh, you know, that whole hazy pale ale, an entire family and spectrum along the ABV range of, uh, of hazy beer is a, is a big chunk of what you make. Um, you know, talk to me about some of the kind of, you know, core components of that for you, what defines a Southern grist hazy IPA? Yeah. Uh, I feel like our hazy IPAs in general have kind of changed quite a bit over the years. I mean, in seven years, I would hope that most breweries are kind of evolving and tweaking and, um, you know, making improvements to their products. But, uh, you know, I've, I think what defines a Southern Grist IPA is I think if you were to, if you were to kind of take the IBU average, um, across the market, I think we'd be on the higher end for a hazy IPA for Southern Grace. Really? I, I, yeah, I do. Our, our finishing gravities are still a little high. Um, as you know, I think the the trend has gone that way on hazy IPAs over the years, but 
you know, we first were at Hop, all all of our hazy IPAs. I mean, I think back when we were doing our two barrel system, I did a couple of the zero IBU type beers. I'm using air quotes there. Uh, but we first were at Hop, pretty much everything. Um, and we'll get a decent IBU baseline. And I'm using the, the term IBU for decent is very subjective there i mean sure, we don't sure. we don't send our beers off for testing we don't have that in our lab to test for actual like where IBU. does your software calculate that at typically for a, a standard hazy ipa you know not not pale ale not double yeah. uh, if i were to put our beers into beersmith which is something that we still all will sure. run things through to kind of get a baseline um it'll put it around <laughs> it calculates it at like 10 to 15 but i i mm-hmm. would say it's probably higher than that um, cause I mean, our, I do think that the, a lot of the hazy IPs on the market are very sweet. Um, which is, is part of the style. That's great. Sure. Ours sure. tend to be, usually have a little bit more of a hot bite. Um, and I do attribute that I think to a little bit more of hot side IBUs, not the, obviously you get bitterness with cold side additions. Um, sure. that is that, and you know, beers being too green and being packaged too early or not doing their thing is, is very, very real. But um, I do think we probably get a little bit more pot side than a lot of breweries do. What do you What do you use for that first ward edition? It, it, honestly, at this point, now that I'm so long on my hop contracts, it's whatever as the highest alpha <laughs> acid that I'm trying to burn through right now. Uh, which for the next twenty years is going to be Vic Secret, I suppose. At this point, so <laughs> oh, we'll man. just go ahead and call it Vic Secret. <laughs> um, yeah, well, at least uh, at least you're honest about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it started as Columbus, as you know, right. Uh, it's just a really good stalwart um, hop for early kettle usage, sure. um, but it, for the past year and a half, it's been Vic Secret, and you know, um, yeah, there's a, a beer brand we had that's near and dear to my heart that used a lot of Vic, and then unfortunately, um, it was a pale ale, not an uh, not an India pale ale, and so sales didn't go the way I wanted, and so now I'm over contracted on Vic, and. It's a great, it's a great bittering hop. No, it's a great bittering hop, an expensive bittering hop, but a, yeah, but a great bittering you know. hop. Yeah, yeah, sure. But yeah, you know, for us to get that baseline, I mean, eh, you know, anywhere depending on the brand or the size of, of what I'm knocking out, it's anywhere from like a half pound to two pounds in, in the kettle. That's it. But it's all first work. You know, it goes in before we ever hit a boil. I'm probably only a third of the way through my, my kettle collection before I'm tossing my first wear hops in. Yeah. Um, I have always found completely subjective, but I've always found that first wear hops just give a little bit, uh, more of a, a softer bitterness than, uh, adding them at like 60 minutes or something like that. And it could be all in my head, but, uh, I've, I've decided that and I'm sticking to it type of situation. You know, I could be lazy to a fault sometimes, but yeah. Hey, if it works for you, we don't want to mess with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, what, whatever that kind of mojo is. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. I, I think our IBA, our IPAs have a little bit more of that hot punch, but I'd like it to be a gentle, assertive, hoppy bitterness character, not necessarily a punchy one that's leaves you kind of, uh, sharp in the back of the throat. Right. Right. Um, now imagine Whirlpool is, uh, is the next, uh, if we're thinking about hot side, well, we should, we'll, we can walk back after this yeah. and talk about some of the, uh, you know, building a, a grist bill around it too. And of course, you know, water along with that, um, you know, but, but Whirlpooling, uh, would be your, your next hot side, uh, yeah. you know, hop kind of piece, right? Or, or yeah. do you have other hot side additions in there? 99% of our beers right. don't get a single additional hop addition until the Whirlpool. Uh, for us, the Whirlpool 
a West Coast IPAs, I would consider it kind of a traditional whirlpool, if you will, as far as the hot side temperature goes. For our hazy IPAs, though, what, what we're talking about here, um, the whirlpool to me is we, we reference a, a hop stand. Um, mm. We're getting our temperature down to 160 to 165 okay. before we add any additional hops uh, in, in the kettle. So, you know, we just simply do that by running through our heat X, going back into the same kettle the way our uh, system is set up. A lot of it's hard piped underneath. We just have one flex hose that kind of goes from our heat X out to our bottom of our kettle. And we'll just circulate that. It takes two stages, um, kind of making sure you're, you're homogenizing your, your temperatures well. And once once we get to that temp, that's when I'm adding my my whirlpool hops at that point for AZ IPAs. That's still a, quite a bit of work, uh, and I imagine you've tested it both ways. What do you find? Because in 160, 165 is pretty cool, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, uh, yeah. That also starts getting you down into that uh, not hot enough to, uh, you know, um, fight off other kinds of things. You sure, have to have a clean sure. process around yeah, absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, but that's that's a riskier, you know, kind of temperature place that other brewers also knocking temperature down don't necessarily go as cool. Um, sure. You know, what do you what's, what do you think is the impact down there? Yeah. So two questions. I mean, we can talk about you know cleaning the system and and. Because we have a phenomenal, what I would consider a phenomenal lab program, especially for brewery our yeah. size. Uh, we can talk about that if you want. But as far as what that does is, I you know, at the end of the day, there are so many just nuanced uh, things in in the hops that are just so volatile at higher temperatures that the cooler I can get it, I think I'm just keeping a lot more of those flavor and aroma compounds in solution. Um, I always tell whenever I'm training. It's either a cellarman or a brewer, you know, look, if you can smell it, if you're putting hops in the beer and you can smell it, it's no longer in the beer, right? Um, and so my goal is keeping as much of that in the beer as possible. So it's making its way to the consumer. Uh, I find that the getting to that 160, 165 mark has just helped. The hops are a little bit more expressive. Um, we're, we're losing a little bit less throughout that process. And it has, it has really done wonders for us i mean we've been doing it this way now for about four years um we did a lot of testing prior to that you know we we're we we're in our new facility on our new bigger system and at that point i mean five years ago i never want to go back to that day because i feel like every single brew day we were just testing a new variable and it was it was wild but um i do think we we kind of put things through the ringer and at the end of the day we we're pretty happy with with the outputs for for our system and what our hazy ipas taste like when you call it a hop stand, like what are the the mechanics around that? I, I mean, in terms of timing, obviously your temperature, you know, is where it is. You know, you, and I assume if you're calling it a stand, then you're not circulating uh, the entire time, you know, while that's in contact. Or, you know, are there some mechanics to that that say may like reduce volatilization of, of some of those aromatic compounds, you know, while you're going through this process? Yeah, we call it a hop stand. I think that's, you know, kind of the, the, standard nomenclature for dropping the the temperature in the kettle for a whirlpool we used to add the hops and literally like let it sit for a long time we found that it was kind of the law of diminishing returns at that point that we were wasting more time and and just having a more inefficient brew day from a timing standpoint from a personnel standpoint by doing that that now essentially even though we still call it the hop stand that's just us dropping the temperature in the kettle the second I get those hops in at that 160, 165, and you know, I'm kind of mixing them up as I'm putting them in, make sure there's no clumps or anything when they seem like they're they're nice and dissolved in solution, that's when I'm essentially whirlpooling and kind of kicking off the rest of my brew day. 
No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I mean, yeah. doing it that way, I would say it only adds, every beer is a little bit different um, to getting the temperature down, but 35 to 40 minutes on average is really all mixed in my brew day. It's just, like I said, kind of sent through the heat X two different times. I am whirlpoint it in between to make sure my temperature is, is the same throughout the kettle. But um, yeah, it doesn't necessarily add too much time to our day. And I think if we're talking... 40 minutes, 45 minutes, worst case. I mean, the end product is more than worth that. I would do a 10 out of 10 times. Sure, sure. Let's go back and talk a little bit about malt in this. Uh, you know, obviously in the whole style in order to, um, you know, give it that kind of soft mouthfeel, I imagine that, uh, you know, adjuncts are a significant portion of, uh, of the grist bill. Um, you know, certainly the debates out there and different brewers have different approaches to base yeah. malt uh, sure. and, and how they go on that. Uh, you know, where do you fall in this? And, uh, you know, understanding also that there's probably a range to how you do it um, with different beers and maybe even at different ABV ranges. Uh, are there yep. some kind of commonalities and some of the things that you may, uh, you know, some of those factors that you might tweak along the way for various, various reasons? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, yeah. you absolutely nailed it. There are a Depending on the brand, ABV, which you you said alluded to, is a huge factor in some of the decision makings on on the grist. But uh, that will change a lot. And this is something that I would say, if we're talking about selling grist hazy IPAs, have we've spent more time within the past year probably tweaking what we're doing with our grist. Um, we were doing it a certain way. Did I mean, that for a while. It's in your brand, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you got to get yeah, it right. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, we are doing that for a certain way. Then we started messing with the hops and other processes with our beers. And then had to kind of switch up base malt uh, about a year, a little over a year ago now. And so going through base malt trials, we just realized, I realized that I hadn't really given enough thought to our grist bills um, as I was changing all these other things about the beer we're making in our processes. I wasn't doing that with our grist. And so we kind of been focusing on that over the past year. So a lot has changed um recently where were you and uh where did how, where did you end up through this process talk to me talk to me about that kind of process yeah. of testing and learning on it sure so one i would say one of the kind of interesting things for us is we actually used to rarely use flaked grains at all which for hazy ipas i mean you know every brewery talks right. to are throwing in tons of flaked oats and, and we all kinds of stuff i basically had one brand where i did use flaked oats and that was our like heavily oated double IPA. Um, as we've done a bunch of collabs and we've brewed a lot, we've started tweaking things. Um, I started tossing in a couple new experimental ideas with new double IPA brands instead of just brewing the same, you know, six or eight that I had kind of just every couple months um, and seeing what people liked and what was selling a little bit hotter. We, surprise, surprise, have started adding in a lot more oats. Um, I now, instead of having one brand that's very heavily oated, now I have one or two brands that are not heavily oated um, <laughs> well, over the past year. So that's that's been really interesting. And we started using a lot of malted oats as well. Um, mm. But I mean, it's, you know, I, I use Pilsner malt as my base. I like, my goal when I'm generally building a, a hazy IPA is I love that bright canary yellow color if i get served a hazy ipa i want it to be as bright yellow as possible and so um i'm looking for a very 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 light uh base malt when i'm building our our beers and so i'll look for super low level bonds um right now we're using superior pills from from cmg which is great we were using mm -hmm. something else uh swan pilsner it was called their pilsner lager malt 
um, which was phenomenal, but just with some of the logistics and European, you know, economy issues, things like that. Uh, sure. The war and such that, hit, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, we, we had to unfortunately make a big, a big switch, our base grains. So that made me revisit a lot of things, but base mall, we use Pilsner going for a really, really light base. And then depending on the brand, um, we'll layer in different amounts of like wheat or malted oats, but right now pretty much everything's getting a really hefty dose of flaked oats. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, on average for just a regular IPA, how much, uh, you know, additional, uh, oats, uh, malted or flaked, uh, are going in there on top of a, you know, kind of standard, you know, base grist. I, I know. So like our, our flagship IPA now is teal. And that is a 30 barrel. Every time I brew it, it's a 30 barrel batch and that's getting 300 pounds of flaked oats. So 15% roughly, uh, flaked oats for our flagship IPA. Now, if it's a double mm. IPA, it's at least 20%, 18 yeah. to 20%, I would say. Cool. Cool. How yeah. does, uh, uh, you know, water fit into the, the profile here too? Um, yeah. you know, obviously, uh, uh, that's such a huge piece of the hazy IPA puzzle. Yeah. Nashville luckily has pretty neutral water. I mean, it's not super hard. It's not super soft. It's, uh, if we're talking about the water that your Metro, uh, can, can give you, we're pretty middle, middle across the board. Um, so water is something that, you know, I kind of went through some exercises years ago to tweak and mess around with, you know, we find, um, a little bit of gypsum and calcium chloride gets us really where where we need. We've kind of upped our calcium chloride a little bit over the years just to, you know, we find that really helps accentuate some of the hops. But um, we don't do a ton of water additions. We don't treat our our strike water or anything like that. We kind of toss it into the mash as it's mixing. Just the way our system is set up, um, you know, it, we'd be wasting uh, absolute ton of, of minerals to be treating our entire, uh, hot, hot liquor supply. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that luckily we were given a really good starting point for water for, for brewing most styles that we just tweak for a few styles here and there. And hazy IPA does have one of those. Well, it makes it nice and easy if you just have to <laughs> add a little bit and uh, don't have to, to yeah. do any, uh, subtraction, uh, and then, uh, you know, additions. So. Yeah. And you know, water it is, now that, you know, we just talked about, we've changed a lot of the processes over the years and hops and more recently we've done all the grain. Unfortunately, I'm probably staring down the barrel of having to revisit our water, uh, stuff would, would be the, the next stepping point as, as we tweak things to make our beer better, uh, which I'm not necessarily looking forward to because water is, uh, not my strong suit. It's a little bit it's of a, a complex a subject. It's yeah, a beast. Yeah. And I think I, I, anyone also, who's tried to read John Palmer's book can tell you just, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a phenomenal source, but, uh, it's a slog. It's, it's, it, it can be a bit tough. It can be a bit tough. Well then let's, uh, let's flip out and, uh, and talk about that end of, uh, end of hot side into, um, you know, fermentation and dry hopping there, you know, uh, you knock out and then, and talk to me about, uh, you know, what the, your next stages of, uh, of fermentation then look like for you. Uh, obviously there's a whole range of, you know, from, uh, biotransformative, uh, you know, early dry yep. hopping, uh, um, on the yeast side, you've got plenty of brewers that are uh, co-pitching multiple yeasts. Where do you guys lie on this? What do you find, you know, what do you lean on for fermentation? And then how does your dry hopping regimen then fit into that? Yep. So first and foremost, we're a London house. Uh, we pitch London 3 and all of our AZ IPAs. We've experimented with other strains over the years, whether it's a collab or we're just trying to mess around with the new yeast strain. 
die live streams, things like that. We've done it, um, but we are a London house. Um, we get our yeast here in town from bootleg biology. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, such, such a great local vendor to have in our backyard. Um, and we do have a prop tank, so we'll get a small pitch, prop it up, and then we'll, we'll do multiple pitches and run it tons of generations. Um, but, tons of generations. Was oh that yeah. Oh man. We'll take our, I mean, out of one prop tank, I'll be, we'll split obviously into multiple batches and then we'll just keep harvesting from each batch. I mean, we'll go nine to 12 generations. Um, it's quite a bit. So if you're following me thus far, you obviously probably realize we don't do a whole lot of, uh, active fermentation, dry hopping. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't sure. be harvesting sure. our yeast and pitching it <laughs> 10 generations. Um, so do you top crop that yeast or, uh, you know, no, we soft crash. You soft can get crash. it going even further yeah. than that if yeah. you top crop. No, yeah. no, we 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 mess with it. If we're in a pinch yeah. if we don't have any uh, slurry ready to go, and we have a, a stalled uh, tank. We've done a little bit of top cropping and try to kick things back off, but um, that's that's pretty rare. I talked so. to the guys at uh, Grimm in Brooklyn, and they are on like uh, they were at that point at uh, generation two hundred and fifty of their London Ale three. Okay, so uh, which, go back that, to when I said tons of generations, and now I'm going to say <laughs> we, we take it just a couple. Nine to twelve is good. Nine <laughs> to twelve is good. I mean, you know, there are some that are you know four to six, and so uh, yeah, um, that's certainly efficient for you guys. Yeah. To well, be able it, to push it, you know, we came from uh, our you know prior to having our lab and also our. our on staff, uh, microbiologist, you know, I was pretty much pitching fresh every single batch. Mm. Or if I was in a real big pinch, I was blindly doing cone to cone and, you know, crossing my fingers and praying. But that was, you know, that was years and years and years ago where, um, our, our, everything's so much more buttoned up now. But, uh, yeah, nine, nine to 12 is a lot for us and a lot more than most of the breweries we talk to, but, uh, 200 plus is that's wild. How do you keep it healthy over that i mean obviously you're watching it um you know but anecdotally certainly of brewers who earlier on and you know for a lot of london l3 will start seeing it uh you know just drop out and less haze stability over those future you know uh, later generations you know being able to keep it healthy and viable but also very stable and performing the way you want it to over that much lifespan uh, you know that's there's something to be said for that. You know, are there any any tricks that you all employ to do that? I mean, no, nothing, nothing crazy, or you know, mind blowing. It's really we just stay on top of our production schedule. We're only harvesting for the most part. We're generally just harvesting the yeast for the beers that we need, and just making sure we're pitching within like a week and a half, optimally. Um, you know, I work really closely with Isaac, who's currently running our lab, and uh, we're just always making sure that we're not running yeast that that just sits in a brink under pressure for four weeks right to like that i mean we we just counted yeast uh uh it was it was a dry hopped lager of all things and our yeast viability was like single digits yeah what just happened is so weird but you check viability on everything before you pitch it um pitch as quick as you can and then generally you're gonna have you're gonna have healthy yeast that perform well um over time so Sure, sure. Um, talk to me about those kind of fermentation parameters uh, using London L3 um, in terms of uh, time and temperature and then what that schedule looks like. Uh, and then, then when you actually do, you know, harvest and then start dry hopping after that. Yeah, we for most beers, we ferment, you know, uh, mid to high 60s. We'll usually knock, around, knock out around 66, 68, um, ferment around 67. 
once it gets, you know, past 50% attenuation, depending on the day or time of day, we'll uh, ramp up the temp, um, hit, let it finish out at a little bit higher, 70-ish. Um, some, if it's super high Play-Doh, we'll, we'll let it go a little bit higher. Past VDK, and then at that point, we do a soft crash so that we can harvest, and then and then we're thinking about dry hopping. Um, we've done beers where we dry hop, you know, prior to you know, uh, the beer finishing, but that's definitely not the normal for us. Um, what's the what's the difference in that if you you've tasted them that way, and I guess they didn't uh, it didn't produce a, you know, and of course now as we know like some of the research coming out from Omega and others is showing that that kind of dry hopping while it's active is still going on might actually produce less, you know, haze stability in some of these beers. Uh, you know, I don't know if, did you guys see that anecdotally or, uh, you know, not, yeah. uh, you know, test in a sensorial way, some impact from that? We did. We did. Um, it's a great question. Cause I always, for the longest time, you know, it had beers that I knew, through to talking to the brewer or whatever they put out there to consumers. I, I knew we're dry hopped during fermentation and I tasted ones that, especially ours that were not. And I always just seemed to prefer the ones that I was positive. Now this is overgeneralizing, right? But if we're kind of lumping things together, I, I leaned towards beers that were kind of not uh, hopped during active fermentation. That being said, we are always experimenting, trying new things. At the time, I had a couple of brewers, and they really wanted to mess around with the dry hopping during fermentation. So what we did, we took one of our existing double IPA brands, uh, it's called Process Control, and we knocked out, we did two turns, filled a 30-barrel tank um, of homogenized wort, the exact same beer, and then once we had the 30-barrel tank full, because I, d- I didn't want to leave anything up to chance, we wasted a bunch of time and chemicals to fill a 30 barrel tank and then uh, split that 30 barrel tank into our two 15 barrel tanks. And we treated the beer basically the exact same way throughout the end of the process. The only difference being dry hopping it as normal after fermentation. And then with one tank, we dry hopped during fermentation, the exact same hops. Um, with that, we were mostly surprised, not at how different they were and how much we maybe liked one more than the other we were mostly surprised at how similar they were it was i think it it and then we, we released the two beers in like a mixed four pack we have process control and control process and the only difference was when they were dry hopped um honestly most people i mean it was kind of 50 50 if you ask people who said what they liked better um if you ask them why there was very very little uh a good data that you could pull from that. Sure, sure. Number um, one, there's can you tell a difference? And then exactly. number two, and if you can tell a difference, what do you prefer, right? Exactly. And, and for me, the biggest thing, right, you know, especially when we have a lab program is data. We did a triangle test among all the production employees and some of the staff that we have that, you know, we trust have trusted pallets and it failed the triangle test. It literally was as far as uh, the, the, it, the, uh, Triangle test went, there was not, I can't even think of what it's called right now, uh, but the, the data did not support that anybody could actually tell the difference right. between the two. So, so uh, from there, no we're like, you can't you know tell the difference there's between not, the two. There's not enough to all of the a difference. To, yeah. Why are we going to dry out during fermentation, not be able to harvest our yeast? Why are we going to worry about pop geysers, right? You know, blowing up in people's faces. It's just, I was like, I, yeah, cool. I was super happy that that we did that as much as I was kind of dragging my feet doing it because I didn't necessarily 
was like, man, if this ends up being better, this is going to suck. Like, I, I really don't want to start dry hopping all of our beers during fermentation. And uh, we did it. And I was very, very pleased that the results kind of came back like, all right, let's let's not go down that path. We just don't need to. What are the what are the core hops in that dry hop? Uh, just out of curiosity, because I'm wondering in that, that in, in that yeah. beard, in that, that one, yeah, in, that is fifty fifty Galaxy and Motueko. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, well, I want to keep talking about some of this, uh, you know, because I think that there's a you know we have a few more places to go on that question of, of fermentation and dry hopping. But uh, before we do that, hear that. That's the sound of your beer out in the world, hanging out at parties, going on adventures, meeting new people. It's carbonated to perfection and the can art looks slick. Twin Monkeys Beverage Systems knows how to capture quality in a can. Their custom built canning lines combine high quality with affordability so that people can get a taste of your tap room from any room. Visit twinmonkeys.net today and learn just how easy it is to get your craft into cans. Also, Brett is wild. It's unpredictable. Gives funky notes to beer, evolves in time. Historically, it was used with no control, but Fermentus has harnessed it. Discover Soft Brew BR8, the first dry Brett by Fermentus, now available in 100 gram and 5 gram packages. Are you coming to CBC in Nashville Monday, May 8th? 2 to 4.30 p.m. during CBC, Fermentus has teamed up with the Brussels Beer Challenge to congratulate all American winners of last year's Brussels Beer Challenge. After the ceremony, they'll transition to a casual soft brew BR8 barnyard bash, try some beers brewed with soft brew BR8, and mingle with their experts, ask them all of your questions. See you there. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. Contact them today at sales at ABS dash commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs going to the craft brewers conference in nashville stop by their booth to connect with their brewery consultants and enter for a chance to win a keg viking keg washer abs commercial we are brewers so let's talk about uh you know dry hop and process around that um is there anything special to the way that you dry hop in terms of uh controlling oxygen in terms of recirculating in terms of you know making sure that you're uh, kind of maximizing contact time and extraction from those hops but also doing it in a way that isn't necessarily pulling out some of those uh, more green uh unpleasant characters uh you know that uh, none of us really love in uh, overly you know heavily dry hopped uh, pale ales ipas and whatnot sure yeah so obviously because we harvest pretty much all of our beers we're dry hopping generally at that soft crash temp so dry hops go in around 60 degrees i came in this weekend and dry hopped a beer that we actually were not harvesting the yeast on and i still came in first thing i did was soft crash the tank came back after a couple hours and then dry hopped it just to make sure we're staying consistent with our dry hopping temperatures um so it always goes in you know low 60s is when it's getting the dry hops uh as far as controlling oxygen you know we hook co2 up to our our uh, blow off arm spray ball arm sprinkle co2 in there uh we want to make sure we're always having positive pressure coming out of the tank whenever a tank is open just keeping as much oxygen out as possible i think that's very very important um when we dry hop it you know hops go in the top we don't have any you know fancy apparatus to inject the hops in or anything like that we're climbing up on a a, a ladder safety ladder uh, osha approved for sure and dumping the hops in on top uh once once the hops are in we'll agitate with co2 
through the racking arm, just kind of moving it back yeah. and forth. We, you know, I've talked to a lot of breweries who um, recirc their beers overnight. And that is just something that we haven't really done. Um, it's a me thing. I'm definitely worried about just one little TC connection being a little bit too loose or a little bit too tight and introducing oxygen. Um, so we, we do not recirc our, our beers when we dry hop them. We'll agitate them with CO2. Um, but it's that from there, it's, that's about it. And we'll generally have three to four days of contact before we're doing a full crash. Um, and then transferring off, off of the, the hops and, and yeast at that point. So uh, it's nothing again. I, I really don't think we're doing anything super different or revolutionary. It is, you know, tried true we like it uh for for our process and our our brands and it's, yeah what we do so you're throwing heavy hop loads in there do you watch uh do you do you see any additional fermentation then happen at that point how do you manage uh you know through that kind of hop creep uh, we don't know, get hop creep no. we never get hop creep uh honestly the amount of times we've gotten hop creep i can count on one hand huh over the past five years it's it's unbelievable every once in a while we'll think we're going to get hop creep or we'll add a ton of hops. Yeah. We'll, we have a brand that ever we do like once a year gets 10 pounds per barrel of hops. Every time we're like, all right, is this it? Are we going to get hop creep? We never do. Um, so that is something we've never had to deal with, which I, I love, I mean, yeah, I'm not knock, a big knock fan on of wood right now. <laughs> yeah. what do you, I mean, <laughs> now all of our beers for CBC are going to be, yeah, oh. hop, hop creep. <laughs> What do you what do you chalk it up to? I mean, what do you, I mean? Obviously, you know, you're keeping everything a little bit colder there, um, you know. But then, yeah, I mean, it's you know, we're at terminal uh, gravity. Everything's a little bit colder. Um, I think that London L three is just not hardy enough to to keep rolling through. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, yeah. it just stops there. I mean, it's it's we've always wondered why we don't get hop creep mm -hmm. um, at all, but it has never been an issue for us. Uh, what's the what do your what's say a standard hazy IPA or something like teal finish at uh, you know in terms of uh, Play-Doh finishing gravity? Uh, low to mid fours. Okay. Yeah. So it's not as sweet as some. <laughs> it's sweet. It's, it, exactly. It's Don't, sweet. It's just it's not as it's, yeah. It, you know. And again, if you would have asked me what my standard IPA is finished at Play-Doh wise three years ago, I probably said like mid to high threes. Um, mm. We've crept up our play-dohs because we've we've seen that's kind of what the the market where it's going what people want um still sweet but not as sweet as a lot of ipas on the on, and again go back to what i was saying at the very beginning i think what makes us a little bit different is i think ours do have a little bit more bitterness um and part of that is the the slightly less uh sweetness that we're kind of leaving it with there play-doh wise you know, fit, that sweetness in the finish can work just fine as long as there's, uh, you know, bitterness to, yeah. to complement it and balance that out. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I want our hazy IPAs to have a really, like, creamy mouthfeel and body, which is very, very different than, than you know, sweetness, right? Uh, than the beer being too slick because of the very high finishing Play-Doh. So I, you know, we kind of carve, we're probably going to get to this, we carve our beers a little bit lower, Um and I want just a really, really creamy mouthfeel, not necessarily like a sweet uh, drinking experience. Sure, sure. But that ha that heft and the kind of uh, you know body that that residual sugar also leaves in the beer, yeah. you know, especially at a lower carbonation yeah, level. Yeah, it's a good balancing act, right? Yeah. What do you carb to? That that's you know that's interesting. I I noticed this. Uh, I noticed just how 
different in the Czech Republic where, where uh, that lower carbonation, how much that kind of amplifies that idea of body, um, even in these beers that are not necessarily, you know, beers that Americans would consider sweet. Um, yeah. You know, it's such an interesting lever to pull to, you know, to uh, uh, um, manipulate how people, you know, could approach the same kind of beer. Um, you know, where, where do you guys end up on that? Yeah, we target all of our hazy IPAs 2-4. Um, that's, that's what we're coming out of the tank at. So it's probably in the high twos to threes by the time it makes its way into a can and, and it's, it seemed, um, but, uh, we, you know, in the past battling some, some DO issues, just not necessarily, I shouldn't say battling an issue has never, never had like massive problems, but always striving to get better, right? Package DO numbers. We experimented with carving the hazy IPA is a little bit higher to drive some of that out in our packaging right. process. And it worked. We had lower DO numbers, but I think it took away a little bit from the drinking experience. Uh, I, I definitely like that slightly less carved. Uh, just again, going back to using the same adjective, it's just a little bit creamier, a little bit smoother. And so we find that two, two, four is a sweet, we sweet spot for our beers. Hazy sure. IPAs, I should say. No, no, no. That makes sense. Um, I know we. Uh, I want to get on and talk about uh, you know fruited sour beers here sure. too. But I want first. I want to talk a little bit about uh, um, you know hop hop combos. Um, it's a subject I probably haven't talked enough to, to brewers about lately. We tend to get into other process things. Sure. Um, but I'm curious. Uh, you know wh what you lean on. You know you mentioned uh, you've you've got a lot of Vic Secret. Um, you know, but yeah. and then of course with Galaxy and um, you know Motueka, you've obviously uh, you know got a love for Southern Hemisphere hops. I um, do. That is. Are, yeah. You know, talk to me about your uh, your thought process as you're building combos uh, for hops in these IPAs. Yeah. Um, so one thing that we don't generally do right now that I really wish we did, I think breweries who are doing, you know, their own lot selection for, uh, all, all their hops definitely have a leg up in the game. And I wish yeah. we did. I wish we did that. Uh, we're just now at the point where, you know, we have so many, I use, utilize so many different types of hops. This goes back to the, you know, I made my bed. Now I can sleep in it situation with all these different brands, always brewing something new. Um, I can't just buy 5,000 pounds of Citra and call it a day for my IPAs for the year. Uh, we use so many different hops that I'm kind of, I have more breadth than, than depth as far as the varieties that we use. We're really close. I think, you know, I've, I've been working a lot closer with like YCH and Crosby over the past couple of years as we've scaled up. And I think we're really close to being able to go out and do some selection, but that's something we haven't done yet. Um, that said, as far as the hops we're using, it's definitely all the big hot ones that every brewery in America's been putting in their hazy IPAs, uh, you know, Citra, Mosaic, Galaxy. We don't use a lot of Simcoe. I only dabble in it here and there. Uh, there's a guy, Spencer, over at YCH. If I'm using Simcoe, I just hit him up, and I'm like, all right, what's what's the best Simcoe y'all got right now? Because he's, he's like the Simcoe guru. Um, it's not something we use a ton of, but everything else, it's, it's what you'd expect um, in all, all the, the popular hazy IPAs. That, that said, we do have a series of hazy IPAs called mixed greens and it kind of started as we were brewing them all the time and it was my way to the entire goal was every single time we brew a mixed greens they're numerically uh branded so it started with mixed greens one and I think our latest one was mixed greens 57 or something um each one is a different hop combination and it was born out of just my curiosity and how well do these hops play together right and so 
a lot of times if I'm coming up with a new double IPA brand, it will be based off of a mixed greens that I did in the past that I thought did really well, um, either from a sales perspective or from, from a sensory uh, type of view. So I'll take that information because I really only brew every single mixed greens one time, play around with the hops, and then if I, if I really like it, then I'll, I'll use that in a, a future brand. But, um, you know, what, when I do- mo- what were some of the most unexpected successes in the mixed green series? Some, something that were, you took a flyer on and you're like, ah, we'll see how this works. And then it became something that was, uh, that was just like, I didn't exactly, uh, know that it was going to perform that well, but I really love this. Uh, yeah. any, anything that you've learned through that, uh, that uh, was really counterintuitive. I don't know if I'd say counterintuitive as much as I think cashmere really blew me away the first time I used it. We yeah. we used that in the mixed greens and loved it. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head which mixed greens it was. It's been 60 of them. Um, but that was, first time we used it, that was great. And then that has become one of our, you know, if I were to love my hops into like primary, secondary, tertiary, it's probably like a secondary type hop where it, we use cashmere quite a bit um, because of, of that. And then we also use mixed greens as not only just testing different hop combinations, but if there's a new hop product, um, that's definitely our jumping off point. It's like, all right, let's throw it into mixed greens. I always, one thing you can count on with mixed greens is there's a 99% chance that beer will have either citra or mosaic in it. Reason being, (laughs) I know those hops like the back of my hand at this point that when I am trying something new, I can basically, it's very easy for me to pull out what that new hop uh, is contributing to that beer when I pair it with Citra Mosaic, just because I know exactly what, what those are doing. Um, so mixed greens is also, you know, not only is it different hop combinations, it's using different hop products. Um, you know, Crosby CGX and Gray Freestyle. I've been working with them over the past few months. They have uh, like a hop keef product, which is um, a really, really, really cool product that we used in our two mixed greens ago, I think it was, that is um, really fun. So it also me, just gives us a way to yeah. use stuff. Let's talk about those, those, uh, you know, hop products. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you go about uh, um, blending those in with say, you know, traditional T90 pellets and uh, what have you found you know, in terms of techniques of using them that's really worked for you all? Yeah. If it's a new product, um, it's not just the T90 variety that I'm trying to check out. I mean, I go back to the manufacturer. I ask them, I'm like, all right, guys, dosage wise, what do y'all recommend? Process wise, what do y'all recommend? Um, Our our mixed green series, I should mention, is double dry hopped. So they're like, every single one is double dry hopped. And while I was working with Freestyle on this Motueka Hop Keith, um, they said, hey, it is a a liquid product. And they're like, okay, you know, you're going to get one canister. It's X amount of impact, you know, hop equivalent, et cetera. But if you're doing it in two stages, best practice would be to purge the canister with CO2 in between using it. It's like, I, I never would have done that. I would have poured half in, closed it up, threw it back in the freezer. Um, so, you know, it's talking to the manufacturers, talking to the people who know the most about the thing is that you're using, I think is very, very important. So I'm never shy to ask questions and, uh, get, get as much information from them as I possibly can. Cause if I'm using it for the first time, I know nothing about it. I guarantee the people who developed it have at least one, one data point more knowledge about it at minimum than I do, um, if not a whole lot more. So that's always my first starting point. Do you have any uh, uh, projects that uh, that you guys have brewed for CBC uh, or testing new things out 
um, you know, that folks that are in town might uh, have a chance to try and uh, taste along the way. Yeah, I definitely recommend. We actually just released it this weekend, but it was uh, um, just a couple of days ago. We'll have definitely saving the law for CBC. We have a double IPA called Let It Glow that uh, go back to freestyle. They shipped us straight out the processing plant, air freighted us uh, fresh 2023 crop Nelson Sauvin. And <sighs> we did a double IPA with that. So I, I don't know how many breweries they did that with, but I know we're in, we might be. The first or only so far brewery that has released a beer with 2023 Nelson from Freestyle. Um, it is absolutely spectacular. That beer is definitely my favorite hoppy beer we have on tap right now. So I a Nelson fresh hop beer. That sounds yeah. like something. I'm no, 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 to... not 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 fresh oh. hop. Not oh, fresh just hop. this fresh fresh the crop. Fre- beer. Yeah, okay. the fresh crop okay. beer. 2023 crop beer that's fresh. I shouldn't use the word fresh. Yeah, straight out of the processing plant. They were T90s shipped right right to our door. Uh, before gotcha. they well, they the were you know, harvested what four weeks ago, and then of course right. pelletized yeah. yep. uh, you yep. know, yep. through this. Right, right. Yeah. So. so that is that's really exciting. Um, then we're doing a bunch of CBC collabs. You know, using some cool from Crosby. We're using some Chinook and uh, a state grown Comet CGX product in our beer with them. Uh, we got some really cool cryo from YCH. So we definitely have some some fun products that we're releasing beers with during CBC. Sure, sure. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears and quickly talk about uh, uh, hazy. Or no, not not hazy. About uh, fruited fruited sour beers, yeah. and and even when we call them sour beers, maybe we call them tart fruit beers. Sure. Um, you know, because I think even sour maybe oversells the uh, the acidity component of this. Sure. Um, talk to me about how you built a you know you built an idea about making these beers and what that process now looks like for you. I am. I think we've all grown a lot from the days of. Uh, you know, maybe throwing in a probi- probiotic into the uh, the kettle yeah. and uh, you know and letting it roll. What uh, you know? What? Did, how does that 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 whole program look like for you now? Yeah. Um, so whenever I talk to our front of house staff and I ask them, just out of curiosity, like, hey, what's the most common thing you hear from a consumer? Right. When you're the one serving them, they walk up to the bar, your front line. What does the average consumer say to you? hands down the most common thing our our bartenders tell me is people ask for a flight of our sours that's the most common thing and we have kind of come to be known as the brewery that you can come in and and uh we usually have a bunch of kettle sours on tap now i will say if everybody's listening to this prior to cbc we're going to be pretty sour light uh for cbc (laughs) because you know your audience we're gonna be lager heavy (laughs) and you know burning through hop contracts and all that but uh we have always been known to to be very heavy on the sours we'll have a few for sure you know three or four of them but there's there's times where our tap menu is literally like 50 percent uh fruited kettle sours so that was data again i got directly from frontline staff and that's driven a lot of our production over the past so that's part of the reason why i kind of built a program that is so sour heavy is because it sells um it brings people in they want it they like to try it's really it's, they want it in that way to try all of these next to each other and get yeah that, absolutely like, broad and, experience and you know uh taking one one step back talking about hazy ipas for a second i do think that our hazy ipas do taste very different and i'm very proud of the fact that we're a brewery that puts out a bunch of hazy ipas that that are pretty discernible in taste um that said your average consumer if somebody gets a flight of four different hazy ipas you know how different are they tasting to your average consumer some probably very different but a lot maybe not as much whereas you get a flight of our sours and those beers are going to taste a lot different well even <laughs> um, visually they yeah, all exactly. look different right and so you're, exactly. you're giving them so, that cue 
just from sight alone. Yep. So I think consumers really like the idea they can get a flight of our sours, go through four vastly different just consumer experiences, um, which is really fun. And I, I like to generally most of the time be able to provide that for our cu- customers. So we're, you know, brew a bunch of kettle sours. Um, to do that, every every time I talk about this, I always realize that it's not something we do a great job of like marketing externally, but we actually use a local locally caught um, uh, lactobacillus that huh. we sour all of our beer with. Uh, again, go back to bootleg biology. Um, the owner there, Jeff Mello, he has uh, a project. I think it's called like the zip code project or something along those lines where right. he's working on getting a wild yeast or bacteria from every single zip code. And uh, we took him to a friend's farm south of Nashville, uh, probably about 50 miles or so, and just hung out for the afternoon. And we got all kinds of, you know, samples from uh, elderflowers and, and Mary, or not Mary berries, uh, uh, blackberries and all kinds of things that um, were grown on the farm. He took it back to bootleg, found which ones were essentially beer viable. And one of those that, that came back was a lactobacillus that actually performs really, really, really well. Whenever we used to make, prior to this, whenever we would make uh, kettle sours, we were using Good Belly, right? You, you alluded to sure. that, throwing the probiotics in there. We were, I was buying Good Belly off the shelf, coming and, you know, loading up with a cartload of it. People are looking at me weird and man, it's a great product and it still made, it made good kettle sours. But one thing I noticed is whenever we were post souring, we were heating that up. I thought the brewery smelled like sauerkraut. And I was just, ne- I never enjoyed making kettle sours on kettle sour brew day. And uh, it never came through in the f- finished product. So I kept doing it, right? Clean, everything worked sure. out fine. But uh, it always just drove me crazy how weird it smelled um, in, in the brew when we were doing kettle sour days. And so as soon as we switched over and started testing this lacto, it smells just like bright, fresh strawberries. It's so different. It's just, you know, what makes it into the finished product, I, I don't think it's much, but it, I just think it's such a, a cleaner just such a nice, nice lacto, and it performs really well, really consistently for us, and we've stuck with it. And we really should market that, that it's like a uh, a Tennessee-caught wild lactobacillus that we use to kettle sour our beers, but uh, we, we don't do a good job of that. <laughs> you know, no, well, I mean, I, I think it goes down to that, that question of if you're going to make a beer, make it as well as you can and, uh, you know, tell a great story about it. And, uh, sure. you know, the idea that you can make something like this with a microbe or lactobacillus strain that you caught elevates the entire style right yeah. i mean now yep. all of a sudden it's not just this thing that we're making in order to you know sell more beer to a certain kind of consumer it's um you know it's a product with a little bit more intention in it that uh, um you know and then how, how does that lactobacillus strain impact your process around creating kettle sours have you have you changed that process at all the um, not, not too terribly, uh, different from how we've always been doing it. So we kind of are set up, we have, it's a three vessel system, but it's two like kettle whirlpool combis. And reason being, uh, I, I think I first saw that when I was, uh, brewing a collab with Wakefield. I think that's, that's how he was set up at the time might still be. And essentially, you know, we do so many kettle sours that I didn't want to have my kettle tied up and not be able to brew other beers and keep our production schedule moving. So at any given time, there's there's probably a coin flip chance that we have a kettle sour sitting in one of our kettles out there. And we sour, sometimes we'll just let it go one night. Sometimes we let it go two. 
The only reason that changes is really depends on kind of the fruits that are going into the beer. If I'm going to put in a lot of passion fruit, key lime puree, things like that, they're super acidic. Um, we'll just sour it for one night as opposed to two and it'll just keep the pH a tiny bit higher. Hmm. Um, it, it, we just find it can, the finished product can be a little bit too sour. We did a, we have a beer called key lime pie and it's a sour with a bunch of you know, marshmallows and, and key lime puree in it. And we did a batch one time. It was one of the first ones and it was so sour, mouth rippingly sour. And I thought it was disgusting. I couldn't stand it. Um, people still liked it, but it, uh, it was just a little bit too sour for me. So I started working on just my timing of, of when I'm kind of stopping the souring process on some of these beers that are using highly, highly acidic, uh, ingredients. And that's really the only difference, um, in our kettle souring process. Interesting. So I imagine, uh, you know, you see an initial, you know, fast drop that then starts slowing down. Yep. Um, you know, as it drops from there, obviously, since, you know, pH yeah, if is it's, uh, yeah, if it's overnight, uh, if we're just kind of doing the, we sour at day one, knocking out on day two, we'll be down like the three, eight, five to three, nine range on pH. If we're letting it go that whole extra day, three, six, three, six, five, maybe three, seven, if that was, if it was kind of a, a little bit slower, but we're, you know, yeah, three, three, six to three nine is kind of the difference there in that tw- twenty-four hour difference, but it's only point three pH scale. Sure, but that's, sure, that's a big difference. I mean, it's a big difference. It's a what, almost a three hundred percent difference. Yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> um, you know. So then, do you you do you start then you know knowing you, obviously you do start knowing what the, the fruit you're going to add to this is, yeah, and want to dial that in. Do you have you know, do you create then like general acidity goals for these? knowing what that fruit is, where that general acidity for the fruit is and, uh, you know, where you want it to end up. I mean, there's still a little bit of chance involved in this, but, you know, do you have a general target where you want those to be or, uh, you know, does it change for the fruit? Yeah, it changes for the fruit. And, you know, this kind of goes back to the nature of, I, I tend to be just a little bit, I'm more of a creative, uh, type brain than I am necessarily strict adhere to science or, or, um, you know, formalities. And so I, the same way, you know, talking about mixed greens series for the hazy IPAs, I will always pair something with citrus mosaic, but I kind of let the hops kind of do their own thing. I don't make IBU adjustments necessarily depending on the alpha acids of my hops. I'm using a different process because I want, look, if it's a hop with a higher alpha acid, I want, I expect that beer to come out a little bit more bitter. Um, I want the ingredients to be more expressive. It's the kind of same thing with our kettle sours. Uh, when it comes to the fruits, you know, I make my adjustments basically just whether I'm getting into three nine versus three six, and then from there, I let the fruits and the adjuncts kind of do the talking. I I want I expect the beers to be different. I want them to be different. Our beers are made by hand. Uh, we don't have pneumatics. We don't have a touchscreen PLC on our brew deck, and you know there might be a little bit of batch variance uh, just in the nature of the brewery process. Or there's going to be a really big difference in our kettle sours because one soured, or I'm sorry, one's fruited with blueberries and one's fruited with raspberries. And the pH on those two fruits are wildly different. But you know what? The, the, the finished product should be wildly different, in my opinion. And so I'm not necessarily trying to make sure all of our fruited sours hit the consumer or in a, a very narrow specific pH range. That's just not my style of brewing. Totally get that that is the goal for some brewers. Um, I'm uh, just not there. That's just not where my head's at or what I want to provide the brewer. Or I'm sorry, the, the consumer. 
Sure, sure. Now, I imagine like most kettle sours, you're using you know uh, fruit puree um, in order to yep. get the kind of you know uh, vivid flavor at that kind of production uh, you know efficiency to do this. Uh, you know, are there some that you uh, that you found that you really like, or uh, yeah, you know, are there others that uh, you know you know, and, and what is what does that whole process look like for you? Yeah, you know, I haven't referenced it in a while just because I feel like I've kind of got things pretty dialed in, but. Uh, at one point, a couple of years ago, I had a pretty gnarly working work uh, spreadsheet based on who my different fruit puree providers were, what fruits they offered from each fruit provider. It was price per pound and the different sizes. And I had a bunch of subjective sensory data. And now I definitely just have like in, in my head, I know there are certain fruit providers. There's one fruit provider I get my pineapple from. And there's one I get my mango from, and there's one I get my tangerine from. And it's just, um, I, I've, you know, we make so many sours and I've bought so many drums of fruit puree at this point that I, I kind of know what I like and who I like it from. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of just depends on what I'm, what fruit I'm getting and what, what their price is, but I'm very specific about which provider I get, which fruit from. It's not it's not an uncommon approach there. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, of making them really pop, making these uh, these fruited sour beers uh, really capture that kind of fruit flavor in a way that uh, you know resonates with people drinking these. What do you think are uh, you know some of the biggest pieces you know for brewers to pay attention to in that process? Yeah, uh, first and foremost, if you're going to use the fruit use the fruit. I mean, go hard. I I think that a really big mistake is, and I guess it depends on how beer is marketed, right? But if somebody's telling me, oh, this is uh, mango, fruit is sour, whatever, and it's got like a whisper of mango, right? It's like the LaCroix of the, the mango beer world. Uh, you know, that's not necessarily, that's not what Southern Grist is trying to put out. Uh, I think we do a good job of if we say a beer is going to taste like something 95 plus percent of the time it tastes like almost exactly like what what we're saying it's going to taste like and so you know we use a lot of fruit um our fruiting i mean depending on our batch size or the brand i mean we use four drums of fruit and you know three three and a half to four drums of fruit in a 15 barrel batch of beer i mean there's only i can only knock out like 13 barrels of beer into our tanks just to allow the headspace to fit all the fruit in then yeah, i mean our, our yields are pretty bad but we are putting a lot of fruit into our beer um so i think that's really important you have One to thing, brew then a, a high gravity batch in order to, to dilute like that huh yeah so with our system being like an oversized 15 barrel it is very very easy for me to brew essentially i can fit what i would essentially be knocking out 23 barrels of wort in what i'll do is i will dilute with about three to four barrels of water. And then I'll either knock that out into one 30 barrel tank. If I, if it's a one brand or what we've gotten into is we'll split our, our knockout and go into two 15 barrel tanks. Each tank will just get 13 barrels of work. And then it's the same sour base. And then we just treat them both vastly different. And we have two different brands that, that we're putting out around the same time. So we dilute. Yeah, definitely with a few barrels of water. Um, and it works out really well that way. Cause we're only hitting it with a little bit of water cause we need that headspace for all the fruit puree we're putting in there. Sure. Sure. Um, anything else to that? I know I kind of interrupted you. As yeah, you were no, talking um, about. yeah. 
The other thing, we don't implement this with every single beer, but one thing we have we had experimented with in the past, I'm sure you've probably heard it from other brewers on the podcast, but uh, dosing with citric acid. Um, if that's kind of come up before, that is one thing that, and I do think it's a fine balance because obviously citric acid's very, very, very sour, uh, but it doesn't take much. Uh, citric acid is such a beautiful complementary product that can make flavors really pop without necessarily altering the pH too drastically different, uh, differently. So we've experimented with that in the past. It's something that we'll do. I, I'm not going to say we, we don't plan on doing it in every single beer that we do, but because I'm always kind of coming up with new ideas and we're just trying new fruits, if something isn't necessarily popping or isn't standing out to me, we will kind of implement our, our little citric acid dosing procedure where we'll start, I'm going to say it's, like a third of a pound per barrel, I think is our starting point. We'll dissolve that in hot liquor and then add that to the tank and kind of go from there. And that's definitely a really good way to kind of the citric acid. It's kind of like salt in, in cooking and baking, right? A little, little bit of salt brings flavor out. That's what citric acid we find does to a lot mm. of our kettle sours. And just like salt where you can add it, taste, and then add a little bit more. You can, you can, you can uh, always add more, but you can't take it out, right? <laughs> interesting, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. You, uh, you know, I'd certainly heard about, uh, you know, folks using vanilla in that same kind of way to help yeah. heighten some of that fruit flavor. Um, yeah, we it, have so many brands that just have vanilla in them already that, um, you know, if we're going to use vanilla, we're going pretty hard to actually make it a, a very vanilla forward flavored. So we, you know, I've, Talk to other breweries who will use vanilla a little bit different ways, but um, yeah, if we're using vanilla, we're, it's because it's a vanilla beer. We're going ham. Okay. Well, we've been talking about this for a while. Let's zoom out and talk about uh, the big big picture for for Southern Grist. And uh, you know, what do you guys? Uh, what do you see the future in the next five years for Southern Grist? What do you guys hope to accomplish? You've you've seen a lot of growth so far. Um, you know, you've you know, it's uh, it's been a pretty uh, rapid process for you up to this point. Um, what's the, uh, what's the goal for the business now? And where, what do you hope to achieve in the next five years? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's a very interesting question because I think my answer today is vastly, vastly different than it would have been the past few years. Um, where pre pandemic, sure. Yeah. Pre pandemic and pre, you know, look, the craft beer market is changing quite a bit. Um, it, it's, you know, talking to, we know a lot of we have so many friends in the industry and we've talked to a lot the past six months and um, everybody has a pretty similar outlook and it's great. It's great. Everything's such a great industry to be a part of, but as it's changing, um, you know, growth is definitely slowing. It's no longer, I feel like our first, gosh, our first three to four years, it felt like Southern Grist, uh, Ken and Jamie and I felt like we were back in our, our corporate tech days of just like explosive double digit growth, if not, you know, multiples every single year. And it's not, it's not that right now. And I, I think it's important to highlight and, you know, talk about this is our first year where our growth is really going to be from a uh, production standpoint where, you know, if we were to brew 10% more beer, even 5% more beer, that's just more beer that we're sending out of state at pretty dilutive margin. And so at this point, you know, Southern Grist, we're, we're putting our business hats on. Luckily, we come from a business background where I think all of us um, are a little bit ahead of the, the curve when it comes to running a business in, in this industry at, at our size. 
that we're going to start looking at making better business decisions. Um, they're maybe a little bit, a uh, little bit, you know, smarter decisions as far as profitability and kind of how we're doing things as opposed to just make more beer, hate more beer, sell more beer. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of breweries out there. A lot of breweries are making really, really, really good beer. And so uh, consumers have a lot of options and everything's changing. So I think you'll see necessarily, we're not looking over the next five years, we're not looking to go into all 50 states. I can tell you that. Um, and well, that's, I think and that, and that's know, okay yeah. with all of us too. Yeah, we're, we're, that makes us happy. I, I don't necessarily want to brew that much beer. <laughs> so send in the 50 states and do a long, long work week. You know, there there have been those eras in craft beer where, right, just driving more volume, you know, creating more revenue papered over some of the kind of fundamental problems in business and uh, specifically, you know, especially problems in margin profitability. Yeah. Um, you know, and you just had more cash coming in. And so, you know, you could kind of ignore some of those fundamental problems. And, and these are definitely things that everyone, you know, in this business has to be more tuned into making sure, sure. that you're doing it profitably um, because the ramifications of, of all these growth decisions, the debt that you take on, which is more expensive now than it's ever been, yep. uh, or at least it has been for the last 10 years, uh, you know, all of the the margins are higher, the stakes are higher on this. And so, uh, um, you know, and now, of course, quality is just, that's the price of entry, right? Like yep. you, you can't, you can't make a poor quality product because, yep. you know, consumers now know too much for that. Anyway, we could talk at length about that, but yeah, exactly. uh, you know, instead let's talk about uh, um, anything special that you guys have coming up for uh, you know for CBC while folks are in town. So the day before CBC, Saturday, we're throwing our seventh anniversary party. Uh, we're going to have about a hundred breweries from all over the country. Actually, a few out out of the country. We're throwing it at the uh, local um, uh, stadium, the ballpark here. Uh, we have like a minor league team, a beautiful brand new ballpark. It's going to be held there um, on Saturday, right before CBC. That's definitely our big shindig. We usually do it around, you know, February when our actual anniversary is. But with CBC coming to Nashville this year, we couldn't pass up on the opportunity to kind of consolidate, you know. Friends coming to travel. town, yeah, throw yep. a party for them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's always a massive event. It's going to be an absolute blast. Um I highly, highly, highly recommend checking that out. So that's going to be our big one. And then after that, you know, we're throwing a bunch of events throughout the week. Every night there's something different. We have a silent disco one night. Uh, we got some stuff that, are, that is being done with, you know, some sponsors and things like that at our tap rooms, like happy hour type deals. Every day we're featuring some guest breweries who are calling like Friends of Grist. They're going to have tap takeovers every single day. It's new people. So we're going to be doing a lot of fun stuff. Um, it's going to be hard to keep up with, you know, as every CBC is, it's, it's drinking from a fire hydrant sometimes, but, uh, it's going to be a blast. I'm looking forward to it. So there, there will be something new every single day though. That's, that's for sure. If there's one Southern grist beer that, that, uh, we all have to drink when we come to town, what's, uh, what's that one beer? Oh, man. Wow. Put me on the spot with that one <laughs> right now. Oh man. Now my GM's going to kill me. Cause now he's going to have to put this on tap, uh, or keep it on tap. I should say. We we just released our, the latest round of our fooder beers. I know we just got done talking about uh, fruited kettle sours, and now I'm going to talk about mixed culture for a second. Uh, we have a, a one fooder that we have a really cool Solera program going with, and I think our our house culture in there is pretty phenomenal. We took a small portion of that, aged it in gin barrels, and we just released bottles and draft of our gin barrel aged perpetual composition. 
obviously being a, a, a nod to our Solera method of production there. Um, just came out, and so I'll try and make sure that's on tap the week of CBC now. But that beer is absolutely just, it's drinking so well. And then, um, you know, I'm excited. We haven't packaged it yet, but I'm excited. We have a couple experiments. We have like a, a lager that we're getting ready to package later this week with a thylized lager strain that we've never used before. It's really, really fun and unique in the tank right now. So that'll be something to look forward to. And we'll, we'll have something for everybody. That's, that's for sure. Fantastic. That's a great place to bring this to a close. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24 7 service and support. Try Gambrinus Vienna to add depth without too much sweetness. Trust the experts at Old Orchard to schedule freight for your next craft concentrates order. Take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system. ProBrew's rotary can fillers reduce waste and produce higher quality packaged beer. Try Indie Hop's unique varieties to modernize, brighten, and diversify your beers. Twin Monkeys offers customizable packaging solutions for every craft. Discover SoftBrew BR8, the first dry brett from Fermentis. And ABS Commercial is your full-service brewery outfitter. And, of course, once again, if you're heading to CBC in Nashville, join us and our friends from Country Malt Group on Tuesday night at Yeehaw Brewing for the one-stop party with music by Goodbye June. If you've enjoyed this podcast and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and uh, show us that you care. Jared, if people uh, want to come visit you guys uh, at, while they're in town for CBC, uh, where do they find you? And, uh, and if they're not coming to town, uh, where can they find you out there in the digital space? Yeah, so we have two tap rooms in Nashville, one in East Nashville, one in West Nashville. Both are, at most, a 10 to 12 minute Uber ride from from Broadway or the convention center. So very, very close. Our East side kind of has a full restaurant. Our chef is absolutely rocking it when I tell you it's it's phenomenal. It's not what you expect when it comes to brewery food. I highly, highly recommend you go to our East side location, Hungry, and I think most people are gonna be blown away. Um, but yeah, catch us other, you know, outside of the, the physical space, catch us on most on Instagrams where we do a lot of our, um, you know, news and kind of goings on with the brewery, um, a little bit on Facebook and, and such, but yeah, I look forward to seeing everybody here. Hopefully, hopefully people come through. And if so, I mean, I'll be brewing. I'm going to CBC personally on Monday, but Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll be brewing. So if there's anybody out there who wants to pop in, check out the brew space, anything like that. I mean got uh I, I i love talking with industry folks so welcome well, i will make sure i come see you while i'm in town and i hope uh, a lot of other folks out there do too thanks for thanks for talking with me uh it's been great to talk about brewing with you cheers yeah cheers man thank you This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.